In uh, studying for my Sunday school class this week, I was teaching about uh, the relationship between Christians and uh, wider Christendom. And as you kind of think about Christendom, there's a lot of different denominations within Christendom. There's a lot of different sects. And, and there is, within all these different churches, different denominations, there are a great variety of differences, not only in what we believe, but also in how we worship, how we, our liturgy, our religious practice, our religious worship traditions. And whatever church you, you may study, you'll find that they have worship traditions that some of them are based upon biblical convictions, convictions from the scripture that uh, the scripture teaches that, therefore we will do that. And then some of the things that churches practice in their worship are simply cultural, uh, cultural matters. They're, they're, uh, they're just cultural uh, matters uh, that reflect the, the time, the, the people, uh, and the, maybe the location of, those, of that church in that era. And many of them are simply just practical things, we, matters of wisdom. So as we study these churches, you kind of just get to appreciate how even in, uh, and we're, we don't, we're not uh, foolish enough to think that we're the only church of Jesus Christ, that there are a lot of other churches out there, that there is a, a great diversity in worship in, uh, among uh, the churches of Christ around the world. Now, if you think about our own worship traditions, if you've been with us for a while, or if you're new here, you might kind of—it's kind of neat if you're kind of checking us out. I'm glad to have you. Welcome uh, to the church. You may find say, "Well, why do they do that? Why did they do this?" Uh, and those are great questions. But uh, if we think about our worship traditions, we might even ask ourselves, especially those of that have been part of the church, how much of our worship traditions, what we do here from Sunday to Sunday is something that the Bible mandates. It's a, it's a biblical command. It, it's, we could point to a verse in Scripture and say, this is the Scripture, what the Scripture says, and that's why we do this in our worship service. And then, uh, how much of what we do in the church is uh, simply uh, out of practical, uh, practical nature? It's because of a, uh, maybe some cultural thing that we have, uh, that, we, that we have uh, different uh, ministries or, or programs. Sometimes, as an established church, though, it is easy for us to lose sight of which is which. We lose sight of our traditions, whether they come from biblical convictions or whether they are simply cultural practices of this church. And what happens is that we, we lump them all together as being important, all being valuable, and we we know that we've kind of, we may find ourselves stepping or uh, having crossed the line when we get upset when something in the church changes. And those of you that have been with me for 20 years, uh, you've probably seen some changes in this church. And just like uh, me, uh, there's some changes we liked, some changes we felt a little uncomfortable with, I'm sure. But change is inevitable in a, in a church, even though we have a lot of traditions. And sometimes we, we get upset because we're just simply accustomed to a church worship practice or worship tradition. For instance, if next week uh, we just decide to say, you know, what's the longest part of the service? It's the, well, it's the preaching of the word, my teaching of the Bible, right? It goes a real long time. Let's, let's, let's get rid of it, okay? And let's replace it with, you know, let's replace it with prayer because Jesus said my house would be a house of what? Preaching, no prayer, prayer, right? So, yeah, we, we should pray more often. No more preaching, prayer. How would you feel about that? 
I'm hoping some of you would say, I feel a little uncomfortable with that, Pastor Henry. That's a, that's a little going too far. Because I hope, and then I ask you, why? Because I like it that way. I just like to, I'm a, I'm a I, you know, I'm, you see my face? You know, I'm, I'm Asian. I like to study. You know, I just like to study. Oh, sorry, stereotyping all you Asians out there. All right, but uh, I like to study the Bible, you know, and maybe it's kind of, maybe something, maybe that's just a cultural thing. But I hope for most of you to say no. Pastor Henry, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. If we don't teach the truth on a weekly basis, we are not being a church, right? And so you would say that, uh, hopefully. But take another example. What if next week, uh, and I want to first of all say I appreciate all the ushers who serve in this church, okay? I appreciate all of you. What if next week we decided we're just not going to have any ushers, no more ushers ministry. Everybody just kind of come in, find your own spot. Everybody, uh, hey, you got to turn around and pass the plate to the person behind you, okay? Because you know, just got to do it. And uh, if you, nobody at the door greeting you, nobody's, no security, nobody's uh, watching out. Or maybe we just simply say, hey, because uh, we don't have enough people, let's just take the first 10 people walk the door as your ushers today. That, that'd be kind of different, right? That'd be fun. Uh, no. <laughs> and then the, the 21st person, you, you're, you're preaching today. <laughs> uh, okay. N- enough humor. Sorry. I read some article about no humor in preaching to this past week. But why would we, would we feel uncomfortable with uh, no ushers ministry? I probably would. But then I'd ask myself, why? Why? And when I ask myself, then the answer, is that a biblical conviction that I have? Or is it simply a cultural practice that I, I like to have? Okay, and you can ask yourself that question. Now, um, some of our worship traditions are truly biblical convictions. Others are maybe extensions of the application of biblical convictions, biblical uh, principles. We kind of apply principles and say, yeah, I think that's the best way. But it's not explicitly stated in Scripture. Then still others are simply just practical, cultural practices of the church. And if we were to change them, it would not be against God's word. And so the question then is, well, when we do change uh, worship practices in the church, worship traditions. Who decides that? Who ultimately decides what is important for our worship service? It's not me, is it? It's it the elders? Is it maybe it's Stan, who's our worship director, Stan Leon, or, or is it the worship committee? Now, all of these people have a say in what takes place in the worship of the church, but ultimately, who decides what is important for our worship service? Yeah, that's right. Sunday school answer number one, Jesus, okay? Jesus decides. Because why? Because as a church of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the head of this church, right? He's the Lord of this church. He's the Lord of our lives. And so therefore, if we're going to want to worship him, we should look to his word, the teachings of Christ, for how he wants us to worship him. And that should be the first and foremost. And he guides the church. And but and I would, I would say that when we lose sight of Jesus in our worship, in our church, in our walk with God, then what happens is that we replace Jesus with our worship traditions. And our worship traditions become what we find, we find that valuable, we've identified that, we think that's, that makes us feel special, and it almost it becomes our God. The same thing happened in the days of Jesus with the scribes and Pharisees. Their worship traditions, they had made many, had become their God because they lost sight 
of the Lord God. They lost sight of the Messiah. And when the Messiah even showed up right before them, they could not see him for the truth of who he was. Their worship traditions, uh, particularly in relationship to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the center of their worship. That was the day they worshiped the Lord. They would go to the synagogue. They would go to to the temple on on Sabbath. And they made a whole elaborate kind of uh, set of rules which they painstakingly observed in order to rightly worship God in their minds. Certainly, they were instructed by God in in the fourth commandment to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, but with good intentions, they, they added. They wanted to not break the, violate the law. They created an, an overbearing system of extra rules to guard them in all aspects of Sabbath day. <laughs> it, there was one rule where basically they turned, because you could not, uh, were not supposed to carry any load. They, they decided that you could not carry anything heavier than a fig on the Sabbath. Can you imagine, how would you go around to deciding, is this heavier than a fig or not? It was an overbearing system. So much that when the Lord of the Sabbath arrives on earth, they are more concerned with keeping their own traditions, their traditions, than recognizing and worshiping the Lord their God that was right before them. Their traditions became their God. Today's passage reminds us who is to be the center of our worship. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Lord of our worship. Jesus is the Lord of our lives. And everything that we do in this church, especially if you're here, you're not yet a Christian, you're kind of just checking us out, I want you to know we do a lot of stuff here. But at the heart of everything we do here is so that we might know Jesus Christ, that we might have a relationship with this Jesus who is the creator of the universe. And hopefully you'll you'll learn that as you come and worship with us. But I pray for us as a church, especially an established church, those of us, many of us who have been here a long time, and we've, uh, that we would always be willing to reexamine our worship traditions. Not to say that we have to change them, but just be, have a healthy examination of our worship traditions so that we know what's, what's biblical convictions and what is simply cultural or practical so that these cultural worship traditions will never become a burden to us but a joy as it draws us closer, as all these things we do draw us closer to Christ. Well, in this uh, instance, we're going to see, as an outline for us, this passage where Jesus has this conflict with the Pharisees and scribes of his day. And Jesus and the Pharisees have this conflict that begins in this Galilee, and it keeps on going all the way till he is crucified. But as he has this conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of that day, it challenges us to reexamine our own Christian worship traditions, that we would hold them uh, in light of Scripture. All right, so let's look at the, these are going to be two stories, two, uh, two exchanges that Jesus has with the Pharisees. They both have a parallel outline. They're going to be very similar, and uh, let's take a look then. All right, so first, the first conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is this, that they had a problem with him because he and his disciples were eating on the Sabbath eating on the Sabbath. Now, look at the conflict. There's a conflict that arises in verse 1 and 2. Now, it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating their grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, um, this was a, this is, what takes place here is something that was quite common in those days. 
In those days when uh, you would travel, it wasn't like there was many well-developed roads. They would often travel through uh, roads that would take uh, you through town to town, through roads that would take you through the fields. And it wasn't like there was, you know, McDonald's at every stop or Starbucks at every stop where you can stop and get food. You could bring some food. But along the way, God's law allowed that for a traveler or maybe a stranger who was in the area, if they did not have enough food, they could always pick the grain the heads of grain from, an, from any field that they were walking through. They couldn't put in a basket or store it, but whatever they could use with their hand, where they could take, they'd take the grains, and then the heads of grain, they would basically rub it together to remove the chaff, and then they can eat the grain. God allowed for that as an as a act of mercy and compassion for, the, for this traveler, for the stranger. But the problem with, and, and so Jesus' disciples were doing this, they were eating the grain. But the problem arises because it all takes place on a Sabbath. Now, this word Sabbath is a key word in this text. It appears six times throughout the passage. And you remember, the Sabbath is the most important aspect of the Jewish religious system. It's like Sundays for us, you know. The most important day uh, for our practice is when we worship on Sunday, when we gather together as a church. That's probably the most important thing for a Christian today, when we gather. And for them, it was this, for the Jewish people and then, it was the Sabbath. It was the day that they were to rest this word, uh, in fact, means rest. Uh, the Hebrew word Shabbat uh, means that. Uh, and it's based, the whole practice of Sabbath is based upon the creation week. In Genesis 2, God created the heavens and the earth in six days and all that is in it. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And it isn't until the time of the Exodus that he, God then makes the observance of the Sabbath, the seventh day, a command in the Ten Commandments. That's the fourth commandment the, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11 to uh, to keep the Sabbath, to, to, uh, keep it, to remember it as holy. It was to be a day of rest for all of Israel. It was to be a day of no work. And it was grounded upon creation. However, it was just, that's how they saw it. They understood it. It was a day of rest. But it wasn't until Exodus chapter 31, uh, maybe 11 chapters later in Exodus, uh, verse 12 to 17, at the conclusion of the giving of the law, God then makes clear the purpose for the Sabbath commandment. They were to rest on the Sabbath, but that's not the meaning of the Sabbath. You know, what you do on the Sabbath is you rest. But what does that mean? What does it mean? And God makes clear, when he says to Moses in Exodus 31, verse 13, but as for you, he's telling Moses, to speak to the sons of Israel, saying, you shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. See, God tells Moses to teach Israel that, this, that they need to observe the fourth commandment. They need to observe all the Sabbaths, the days of rest. Because why? Just not so that also oh, you'll be well rested. No, because it's a sign. It's a symbol. It's to be a pointer, an image. It's something that teaches you something. It'll teach you a truth between God and Israel, his chosen nation, throughout their generations. And what is this reason for? That you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so basically, God tells Moses to teach Israel that the reason they are to observe the Sabbath is so that they would be a day of rest to remind them of who is their God, to remind them of their God. And that is why God gave them the Sabbath. Not just so they could rest, He's not just thinking, oh, this is just be, it's good for mankind to rest, and though it is good, obviously. Oh, thank God for the weekends, many of us, right? 
Do we need that rest? If we have to work seven days a week, we would be hating it. But God gives us rest. But nevertheless, it is a sign between God and Israel so that they would remember, know who is their God who sets them apart from the nations of the world. Who is their God? The Lord. The Sabbath isn't just about resting in and of itself. The Sabbath is about knowing who is your God. And so I would then take that as an application for you and me today. Now, I want to add, and we don't have enough time, but just simply say the Sabbath command is not reiterated for the church. It's not reiterated, for, it's not reiterated in the New Testament for us. And, but it is easy for us to fall into the same faulty worship like the Pharisees did. You see, they were, guilty of this, they were guilty of just making the Sabbath about resting, about not doing work, instead of about knowing their God. We are guilty that when we, do, when we do the same things. When you come on Sunday morning and we focus about worship and we make Sundays, what's Sunday's about? That's, about, that's when we attend church. What's Sunday's about? Oh, uh, that's about when I sing praise to Jesus. Or that's when I, uh, Sunday about, it's about giving or it's about serving uh, one another or any other act, number of activities that you and I do on a Sunday morning. Not to say that any of those are wrong, but all our activities together in and of themselves, is not what Sundays, the gathering together is about. It is Sundays when we gather together as a church is about our worship and reverence of Jesus Christ, about knowing him and knowing him more so that we might go out there and make him known to the rest of the world. Sadly, by Jesus' day, the Israelites had gotten hung up on all their traditions. They had gotten hung up that the Sabbath is about not doing any work. So they, that's why they made all these laws about you can't carry anything heavier than a fig. You can only go about 1,000 yards. You can't even, or uh, I think it was 1,000 cubits, so I forget. But certain distance, you cannot do any list of number, numerous things. And then the, their Jewish um, Talmud and the Mishnah, they had like uh, uh, 39 different uh, areas in which they were regulated with regards to Sabbath worship. 39 different areas. Can you imagine that? Wow. But it was a burden for them. And the Pharisees, in their tradition, had interpreted basically picking the heads of grain that the disciples were doing as reaping. They, they interpreted the rubbing the grain together as basically as threshing, allowing the chaff to fall away as winnowing. And so to the Pharisees, Jesus' disciples were guilty of doing work on the Sabbath. And this was something that was not lawful. In their minds, this was not lawful. This was not allowed by God, by God's law. Even though if you search all the Old Testament law, you will not find any law forbidding them from doing what they did. But nevertheless, they accused Jesus' disciples of a high crime, a serious crime. You know, you and I today think, well, eating on the Sabbath, well, what's what's wrong with that? But to violate, to be accused of working on the Sabbath, the penalty, you know what the penalty was? It was death, according to the Exodus 31. It's a capital punishment for, that, for the crime of working on the Sabbath in the nation of Israel. So it was a serious thing to be charged. That's why they were saying, why do you guys do what's not lawful? They said, why are you doing what's guilty of people who should be murdered, should be uh, executed, I'm sorry. But were they Right? Jesus offers an answer, a correction. So we see the, the conflict 
And we see the correction in verses 3 to 4. Verse 3 to 4, we read. And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priest alone, and gave it to his companions. Jesus, in his skillful teaching, skillful wisdom, answers their question with a question. He does this not only here, but in the next, uh, uh, the next conflict as well. And he says, have you not read? Actually, he says, have you not even read? <laughs> and, you know, uh, when you read this, this was a serious slap in the face. It's like if you come up to me after the service and you say, Pastor Henry, have you not read in the Bible that what, you know, something, something, you, what you said was wrong. I said, what? That would be like, that would be, a, that would be an affront. And you can say that if, if you're right, by the way. But, um, but the truth is, these scribes and Pharisees, they were, to be the, they were the experts in the law. The scribes were the lawyers of their day, the experts of the Mosaic law. They would make sure uh, what was legal, what wasn't legal. And Jesus says, what, haven't you read? It's like they, it was a, it was a serious uh, rebuke, stinging rebuke. So Jesus answers the charge with a story from, from the David's life. And if you uh, grew up in the church, you might have heard this story. This is uh, for, out of 1 Samuel 21. You know that David was uh, hated by Saul. Saul was jealous of David. And oftentimes, Saul tried to kill David. Uh, and uh, on this one instance, because it got so bad that Jonathan agreed, had made a deal with David and said, I'm going to help you to know when you should run away. And uh, Jonathan basically realized that Saul, his dad, was going to kill David, wanted to, kill, wanted to really kill David. And so he sent David off, and David fled. It was such, he was in such danger that he had to run away. He, he went, traveled, left with his, some of his men, and they had, did not have any time to pack or anything, and they just fled from Saul. And as they were fleeing, they, they were in need of food. They became hungry. They got tired. And so what did they do? They're, as they're running away from Saul, they're running away from the king, they're running away from the, the, the ruler of the land who has all the resources. David turns to God. He goes to Nob, the city, the town of Nob. And Nob was significant because Nob was where the tabernacle was. Before the temple, there was the tabernacle, the, the tent of meeting, where God would meet with the people of God, where the high priest would be. And there he went to Nob, and there he requested of the priest. Uh, who was named Ahimelech at that point, and he asked him for any food. And the priest realized that he had nothing there. He had no other food, but he had the, the consecrated bread. The consecrated bread, according to Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, was, was holy bread. It, it was 12 loaves of bread that were placed on the table before the Lord in the tabernacle. It was like before the Holy of Holies. And there uh, it would be offered in a sense as a symbol of that God provides for his people, that he provides bread for them. It's a, it's a picture of that. But each week that bread would be replaced with newly, fresh, uh, newly baked bread. And the old ones would then be given to the priest to eat. It was only for the priest to eat, to the sons of Aaron. But Ahimelech took that bread and gave it to David. David is not a descendant of Aaron. He's not a priest. So what Ahimelech and David do, do here is they violate, yes, they violate, they break one of the laws of Moses. They break this ceremonial, uh, sacrificial rule, law, part of the sacrificial law system.
Now, while David and his men clearly broke a ceremonial law in order to provide for their needs, Jesus' disciples, however, in contrast, do not break any ceremonial law. Jesus, in fact, never breaks any law, okay? Even though uh, David has a, did, and, and he's not condemned for it in any way. In fact, Jesus can, commends it here. But Jesus never violates law. But his disciples don't break any ceremonial laws here. They merely broke the tradition of the Pharisees, the religious traditions that were part of their culture. And so Jesus' point is this, that if God permits David and his men to eat the consecrated bread, which was forbidden, then how much more for the Davidic Messiah, Jesus himself, to permit his men to eat from the grain from the fields on the Sabbath? When it was, and it wasn't, by the way, it wasn't even a violation of the law. Now, one question we might ask is, why does God permit David to break a ceremonial law? Did he sin? And here's where Matthew's account sheds some light. In Matthew 12, 7, uh, the parallel passage to this, oh, Jesus, in having said the very same things, then adds at the end, but if you had known what this means... I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus quotes Hosea 6, chapter 6, verse 6. And he shows by quoting Hosea 6 that God, even in Hosea, as well as he's, he says, God says similar things in Isaiah. He says in Jeremiah as well. He says in the, in the other prophets. But God is more concerned about the compassion that Israel shows to their neighbors than the sacrifices that they offer to God. Remember Isaiah? Uh, yeah, you all you remember Isaiah when priest Isaiah. God says, don't bring your multiplied offerings to me anymore. They're odious to me. They're despicable to me. Why? Because you don't treat your brother and sisters, your fellow man, with love, basically. You ignore justice while here you are offering up your, your offerings. You're obeying the, the sacrificial laws. What use is it to, off, uh, to observe the sacrificial ceremonial laws if you have no love, no compassion on your fellow people. That's Jesus' point. And it, he, it shows us that the needs of man in God's eyes outweigh the ceremonial and sacrificial requirements of the law. And Jesus' answer is enough to correct the false accusation of the Pharisees, but his final statement gives an even greater reason for why he is innocent of their charge. And then we see the conclusion in verse 5. And here, Jesus, in this statement, is a, is a very key statement about who Jesus is. And it would be the main, in my opinion, it's the main idea of this passage. Here's what Jesus said. And he was saying to them, that is the scribes and the Pharisees, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is referring to himself here. He's the Son of Man. That's a messianic title which had already been used of him already in chapter 2, verse 10. He is the Son of Man. He will, throughout his ministry, he'll refer to some, the Son of Man has not, come to seek, has not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. But here Jesus points out by using this title of Son of Man, it comes out of Daniel 7. It's a messianic title. He's revealing to them that I'm the Messiah. He's the Son of Man. And the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is one who has authority. He's going to be given authority by God Almighty to rule over the world, to bring about and establish a kingdom of peace over the world. That's why they were, the Jewish people are always looking for this Messiah, this, this uh, here in Daniel 7 called a son of man. 
But Jesus says, of the Son of Man, whom he is, is also is the Lord of the Sabbath. Here they are talking about, charging him, saying, you broke the Sabbath. You worked on the Sabbath. Your disciples worked on the Sabbath. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Since he is the Messiah, he is authority, and as the Messiah, his authority extends even to the Sabbath. And remember, the Sabbath was established by whom? By God, right? The Lord God. He gave it to Moses, who gave it to Israel. It was given as exclusive sign between Israel and who? God. So when Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he is essentially identifying himself with God. And the Pharisees would have understood this, that Jesus was claiming again to be God. Who can forgive sins? God. And so he forgives sins and heals the leper. Who can be the Lord of the Sabbath? Who can to, he, he, he can change the Sabbath? He, can, he defines the Sabbath? But God, and that's Jesus. It's for this reason he can respond with authority in the face of scribes, regulations, and traditions. He's not afraid of their traditions. The common man would have been afraid because these are the religious leaders. These are the lawyers. These are the, they know what they're talking about, right? And if they tell me that I can't carry anything heavier than fig, then that, I'm going to do that. But Jesus comes and says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And you listen to me. Because all your Sabbath, everything that the Sabbath, the rules and regulations, everything that was meant to be, everything that you have made the system to be, it was a, the Sabbath was established by me. And what's more, the Sabbath points to me. All these ceremonial laws, all these sacrificial laws, they all point to me. I am your Sabbath. I'm the source of the rest that you're looking for. You trouble? You weigh down? Are you burdened by life? Are you overwhelmed by sin, by the sin's destruction in your life? And I hope that you will find that Jesus, when you know Jesus, that he is your Sabbath. He's the source of your hope and your rest. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus knows exactly what the Sabbath is all about because he was there when he instituted it. And if David could override the ceremonial law, then how much more the author of the law? How much more the one whom the Sabbath points Israel to? And that's Jesus' point. Of course, the Pharisees refuse to recognize Jesus for who he is. They continue to find fault in Jesus' ministry. They, they hold on to the tradition so much, they refuse to acknowledge. Even though he said, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath, they should have just bowed down and worshipped him right there and then. But they didn't want to. They held on to the tradition. Their traditions were their God. And so they continue to attack Jesus. They continue to find fault. In the second, in the second passage, verse 6 to 11, they find fault because he's healing on the Sabbath. He's healing on the Sabbath. The conflict arises in verse 6 to 7. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and there was a man who, there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so they might find reason to accuse him. So Jesus is just doing what he normally does. He came with the number one priority to do what? To proclaim the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God. So he's coming to tell people how you can go into the kingdom of God, how you can enter heaven, how you can have a right relationship with God, be restored to him. He's talking about how you can repent from sin and turn in faith to him. That's what he's teaching in the synagogue, as he did earlier in Capernaum. 
And there in the synagogue, as he's teaching, was a man whose right hand was withered. The withered means basically dried up or waste away. So maybe uh, he, had, he had a paralysis in his hand or his arm, so his hand might have kind of shriveled up. Maybe, or it could have been a, a birth defect. We're not sure, but it was a withered, maybe in, as a description. But notice also that the scribes and the Pharisees were there as well. This was basically their Sunday. It was their day of worship. They were all gathered. Jesus is preaching. There the scribes and Pharisees come, and their focus is on whom? Not on the Lord their God. The synagogue is supposed to be a time of worship of God, but their focus is on Jesus. Well, in a wrong way, right? They're looking to find a fault with Jesus. They're looking closely at him to see if they can find a reason to accuse him. Let me tell you, if you're here at church, if you ever go to church, this is just a devotional thought, by the way. If you're here at church and you're focused on someone else but Jesus, you probably ain't worshiping. That's just good, you know, practical, general guideline. If you're, if you're like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, we have many things. Maybe somebody offended you. Somebody, oh, man, there's that person. I don't like that person. There they are. They're in my space. Maybe you're also, oh, there's that. Oh, that's, there's that. Hmm. Uh, I wish, I want to ask her out, you know. Oh, there's that, oh, there's that fine pastor over there. Oh, boy, I wonder what he has to say. If we're focused on someone else, we're not focused on Jesus, right? And there's these scribes, they were, they're focused on, well, they should be focused on worshiping God, but they were focused on Jesus in the wrong way, okay? Anyways, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were secretly watching Jesus. They were there worshiping, but they were watching someone else. You can just, it's just hilarious that the, I, the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and Pharisees, and, and even though we call it out, we too can be guilty of it. They're just watching Jesus come in. They see the man with the withered hand. They know Jesus, what he does. He heals, his, he heals people. He does it on the Sabbath even. And according to their Sabbath traditions, healing was not allowed. Now, yes, they allowed if you need to save a life, you can save a life. But if it's a non-emergency kind of situation, then you can wait till Sunday. You know, you can wait for the next day. You can wait till Monday even. And this guy was withered hand. He's been had it for, seems like, a while. So surely Jesus could wait for it so that he wouldn't do work on the Sabbath, according to their uh, religious traditions. Uh, but, and according to Matthew's parallel account, the Pharisees actually asked Jesus directly, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You know, maybe they came across it just kind of like, uh, you know, say, hey, I'll teach you, I have a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, you know? But Jesus knows their heart. He knows that they're out to trap him, right? So Jesus responds to this conflict in verse 8 through 10 with his correction. Verse 8, 10. But he knew what they were thinking. Jesus, in his, because he's God, he knows what people are thinking. He knows what's in their hearts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life? Or to destroy it. And then after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Jesus doesn't shy away from their challenge. He directly <laughs> answers their challenge with a question as well. They ask, is it lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus then asked them in question, and in verse 9, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to save a life or to destroy it? This was like an elementary question. You know, it was like a, this is like a Sunday school answer question, right? I mean, you go to any, go to our children's, go down to children's, any of our children's ministry right now and ask the children, children, on Sunday, is it 
Is it right to do good or to do evil? Is it good to save someone or, is it, or should you destroy someone or hurt someone? Do you want to help someone on Sunday or should you hurt someone on Sunday? What's the answer? To help, to save, to do good, right? By the way, that's the answer for every day. Okay, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday as well. It's always good to do good. It's always good to help. It's always good to save a life. And Jesus knows that this is just a real basic answer. They knew the answer. Yes, of course you should do good. But they had made this rule that says, you, yeah, you can do good, but you can't do this. You can't do this work. And healing is a work. Their, it was their false religion, false worship tradition was conflicting with what they knew. The law allowed. And so... Of course, it is lawful to do good and to save a life. Certainly, it's wrong to do harm, to kill on other days. But the Pharisees did not answer because they were trapped. They knew if they had answered Jesus' question in the right way, then they would have answered their own question. Yes, it's right to do good. Therefore, I'm going to heal this man on the Sabbath. It's good. But then, Jesus' question serves a second function function of convicting them because on the same thing, way he's asked is it right to do good or to harm he turns their accusation upon them for here the Pharisees were the one on the Sabbath not coming to worship not coming to do something good for the, before God but they were coming out to do harm to Jesus they were looking to destroy him to find fault with him and all they, so all they could do was keep silent he had shut them up with this question, and that's just the skill of Jesus. Mark's account, Mark chapter 3, verse 5, tells us that Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was upset with them. He was upset, but he was also grieved at their hardness of heart. Here these scribes, you come into worship. Jesus, he not only tells you that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and then he, on top of that, gets to realize, hey, your traditions are wrong. It's okay to heal. Don't you want to do good on the Sabbath? And they say, no. No, we don't want to. They refuse to answer. They want to hold, they hold on to the traditions before the Lord himself. And so Jesus, because they're all silent, he's, he notices their son, and he heals them, and he tells them, stretch out your hand. And as he stretches out his hand, the man's hand is healed. Right before, it's in the middle of the whole synagogue. Everybody sees it. And again, everyone is in awe. Everyone is amazed, except who? The scribes and Pharisees. Because they're there, because their God is their traditions. And what Jesus did struck at the heart of their traditions. It was breaking down all the regulations and rules about the Sabbath that they had created that were all an unnecessary, an unbiblical burden upon fellow Israelites. Though the Pharisees had heard Jesus' own identification and seen his compassionate power to heal, he had compassion on this man. They should have had compassion on him. They would have, should have wished for him to be healed, but they refused and turned their own ways. And we see this confirmed in the conclusion of verse 11, but they themselves were filled with rage. They were angry. Um... You know, if someone gets healed today in our service, 
Even though, you know, I'm, we're not charismatic, we don't believe in healing service, we believe God can heal miraculously, surely. But if someone got healed in a miraculous way, would we be all upset? Rage. No, wait. Whoa, no, God doesn't do that. Or would we say, praise God. <laughs> that verse is healed. Bless the Lord. I better check my scriptures a little more. Check and recheck, recheck, reexamine. That's what Jesus did when he came, and they were all filled with rage. Uh, they, um, the Lord of the Sabbath clearly proved the, the legality of healing on the Sabbath, but they were still bent on seeking his harm. They, they went out, they might figure out what they might do to Jesus. Well, other parallel passages that they conspired with others to, to seek to destroy Jesus. They chose to destroy the Lord of the Sabbath than to give up their system of Sabbath traditions. Here's an application for you and me. And it's uh, the Pharisee scribes, I, I, I like reading and studying about them because they're really, we're, they're probably the closest group to us. I know we always kind of make fun of them, right? Because, but they were the Bible-believing people. They want to hold the Bible. They made all sorts of rules so they, they wouldn't violate the Bible. And we are t- sometimes tend to be like that. We're not like the liberal, the Sadducees who just didn't believe any, anything that the Bible taught. The Pharisees believed the Bible. They tried to uphold the Bible. But sometimes we make our traditions into the, equal to the word of God. We make it elevated to where it's like this is God's standard when it's not. And we always have to, when we get angry about change in the church, and church traditions are not going change. I've been here 20 years. Things have changed, right? Man, we, we have drums, okay? We got fancy lights. Well, you know, we have two services, we, have, we don't sing hymns. We used to sing hymns on an organ. Remember that, those days? Those are, you know, not, not, I miss those days sometimes. Uh, we, we used to sing only, mostly hymns and a few old, you know, old school praise songs. We, um, you know, we used to all come dressed like me. <laughs> Thank God, right? Like, ah. Church traditions only really change. And you ask yourself, how do I respond to the when traditions change? Do I get angry? Do I get filled with rage? If I do, then I need to ask myself, why am I angry? Is it because it's a violation of Christ's commands? Or is it simply because it's, I'm upset because something that I was comfortable with, a cultural tradition, has been changed? And if it's the latter, then we need to resound because that shouldn't be my, that should not cause me to be so upset. I should be willing to let that go because why? I have what's more important. My focus is not about the worship traditions. My focus is on Christ. Let me conclude. Uh, there's a danger of holding on too tightly to our worship traditions. Uh, and you and I know, especially, you know, we, we believe in the Bible. We try to make sure, okay, well, the Bible says this, so therefore we're going to choose these kind of, this kind of aspects of worship. We, we try to make everything we do have a, some biblical principle. We try. And sometimes when we do that, these worship traditions become to us almost like a badge of honor, almost like a sign of godliness, you know, uh, an indicator of true worship even. Uh, for instance, back in the days, we used to pride ourselves, we, we only sing true spiritual songs, hymns. Nowadays, we probably say, well, we sing, we sing the true spiritual songs, the sovereign grace songs. Uh, we, 
you know, we might have at one point boasted that we were our Sunday best to church. Nowadays, I'm probably pretty sure, hey, you know, we know that it's not about what you dress, but we all come as you are. I mean, praise God for that. We might boast in uh, <clears throat> how long, that we have lengthy sermons. <laughs> uh, might, might, maybe not today, though. But generally, lengthy sermons. We may boast in the fact that we, we don't raise our hands here. We, we're not that kind of church. Maybe five years from now, we might be boasting, hey, we all raise our hands here at this church. But is it wrong when these traditions change? They will change. And we have a tendency to boast in them. We must ask ourselves, why do we boast in them? Are they, are they things that we should be boasting in? Are they things that we should be finding our value in? Whatever your favorite worship tradition that you like, put it in there. Put it in that. That's what you must watch out for. And unless it is a biblical command of the Lord, these traditions should, we should allow for change. We might not like it, okay? I don't like change either. We might not like change, but we should allow for change. We should allow for it and not be upset. It's not, if it's not a biblical command, I'm okay if it's going to change. Uh, these traditions can't change, and it's not a problem. Why? Again, because we have, we have what is most important in our lives. We know the Lord of the Sabbath. We know that everything that we do in this church is all meant to point us to Jesus, to loving him more, to loving him with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. He's the object of our worship. What we do is, not, is, is just meant to point us to him. Let us not boast in our traditions. Let us boast in knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our time. Thank you for uh, just this passage reminding us who Jesus is, that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Father, guard us from being like uh, the Pharisees and falling to the trap of making our worship about doing the right things on Sunday morning, doing our, following our traditions alone, and yet, Lord, falling into the trap of not focusing, not worshiping you, the Lord of the Sabbath. Help us, guard us, Father, from uh, ever holding on to church tra- cultural traditions too tightly. Help us to always understand those traditions that are of a biblical nature, that we'd hold on to them tightly. Father, may you continue to mold and shape this church, cause it to be a church that is, it's not about what we do, but it's about who we love, who we try to imitate, who we follow, who we worship, and that's Christ, because he came and died on the cross for our sins. And all of us were unworthy, But because of him, we know you. We know our God, our creator. Lord, as long as you give us breath on this earth, help us to point others to you, not to to our traditions, but to you. Father, may you cause us to be a church that is shaped by a culture that is focused upon Christ, knowing him and making him known. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.